Welcome to Startup Junto, a podcast by your host, The Finance Ghost, and the Venturing Vagabond, who writes fantastic startup-themed articles for thefinanceghost.com. Both of us are fascinated by startups and how businesses grow. Inspired by the Club for Mutual Improvement of the same name that was put together by Benjamin Franklin in the 1700s, in Startup Junto, we hope to pick the brains of players in the South African startup and venture capital arenas. In the process, we just want to learn. You do as well, which is why you are listening. Welcome to Startup Junto. Welcome to episode three of the Startup Junto, hot off the heels of episode one, where we interviewed the CEO and CFO of Snapscan. Episode two, where we spoke with Shannon McLaughlin, who started Ubuntu Baba. And in episode three, we have Nick Hill, who you should have heard of, but you haven't. And that's because he does a whole lot of cool under the radar stuff. And there's an enormous amount that we can learn from him. It's quite exciting to have the Venturing Vagabond in the room here in Cape Town, trying hard to convince him to move to the right city. And and maybe this this will help. Welcome, Vagabond. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Nick, we know you from a previous life and, uh, you know, you're an interesting guy, but I think we'll ask you to do the intro because you do so much in your life. I'm almost not sure what you want to actually focus on in terms of your story <laughs> going all the way back yeah. slash the latest stuff slash uh, trading Bitcoin in 2017 when a few smart people like you made money and some of us didn't. So, you know, Nick, what's the, what's the two minute story of Nick Hill? Why are you on this podcast? I started out in, in a more traditional finance background. Um, I, I worked at KPMG doing articles for a while and then take a six-month trip through Central America <laughs> to figure it out on, on some lovely beaches. And, and basically in that time, I read a bunch of startup books and, and in particular, one book that stood out um, was called uh, Digital Gold by Nathaniel Popper. And upon coming back to South Africa and, and you know, deciding that startups were probably a good way to spend the rest of my 20s, was looking at either joining Luna, which was the leading Bitcoin exchange, which was called Bidex back then, or joining uh, Santa Bank's uh, incubator, and I ended up going with with a Santa Bank approach, uh, just because it, you know, the incubator was a very early stage. It would have, you know, given me the opportunity to kind of get stuck into projects that were at an idea stage. I basically joined on, basically, you know, <laughs> with the pitch of 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 being kind of a biz dev role, whatever that was. <laughs> I had no idea that. I think in startups they have the notion of a developer being someone who can code stuff, so software developers, they're like, well, let's just put business in front of that for anyone who can't actually code. So that was my role. And then um, I joined a project called Phoenix, um, which at that stage was just an idea for how it solved the f- student uh, crowdfunding crisis. That was but, around the fees must fall time, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly right. So, I mean, I, I figured there were kind of some interesting financial models that were going around the world in terms of um, uh, some some kind of in, in the States were allowing people to invest um you know, or structure kind of equity in people that would be paid off over a certain amount of time. They would pay it forward models. And so, yeah, so so it was pretty cool to be part of Phoenix. And I worked on that for about 18 months. Um, ended up uh, leaving with about 10 million in in funding raised for students at that time. So that I felt that was like a good time to leave. And then joined a, a firm called Invictus Capital, which is based in, in Cape Town. And, and essentially, uh, it's an asset manager for, for cryptocurrencies, um, I joined pretty much the start of the winter, so <laughs> things couldn't have been worse really in the crypto market. Everyone had thought that this was pretty much a scam and, and prices were at all-time low. So I feel like that's, uh, you know, if, if ever you want to venture into something <laughs> for the right reasons, it's probably to join, especially something like crypto at the bottom. And uh, and yeah, I've, I've sort of worked uh, worked there, you know, seeing the company grow from just a couple of funds into now a fully-fledged um, blockchain-based, we say, platform 
that provides um, all sorts of investment funds and now include gold and, and solar energy. So moving beyond crypto, you know, crypto itself has just exploded and I'm, I'm full-time working on, on their trading desk now. So uh, we trade uh, basically market neutral strategies, but um, market making or arbitrage across some of the big exchanges around the world. And it's super interesting just to see how crypto has developed. I do think it's worth noting that that's kind of my day. <laughs> that's what that's that pays the bills. Man so of many faces. Yeah, so I, I have a kind of side passion for education. And I think that's probably what, what a lot of the interest is here. So I've started two companies uh, in education. The one, the first one is called Tutor and um, it was very strongly linked to university education for accounting. Basically, it was like a essentially a, a tutoring system for first to fourth years in, in accounts. Um, and I worked with Vitz and, and I think a little bit with UCT on that uh, for a while. And then that became now, which is like my, I guess, side, complete side project, um, but but more so a passion project. It became eventually Math for Money, which we raised funding for, and I went to spend time in Switzerland for three months. Um, it wasn't always called Math for Money, no, was it? No, you're exactly right. It was called Pocket Jam. That's right. But, uh, <laughs> I know this because Nick and I used to have breakfasts in, <laughs> in Cape Town and drink good coffee and talk about startups. Yeah. Well, I mean, interesting story as to why we had to rename it, uh, uh, not, you know, Great due diligence, maybe on my side, but uh, ended up someone found on Urban Dictionary that that's, uh, to, a pocket jam isn't to, in fact, play with your genitalia. <laughs> through it's your not, the, not the branding look you were going for, no. is it? So I thought like, it probably was a good idea to change something that actually yeah. encapsulated what the app does. So essentially, it's just an app where kids solve math problems for their pocket money. And that's I've been developing now for about probably almost two years, 18 months, two years. Yeah, And that's that's pretty much... How I spend my evenings and yeah, sort of spare time. Nick, you ended up in Cape Town, and it's it's not too dissimilar to the Snapscan guys, I guess. It's like CAs with these kind of you know they could choose these big shot corporate careers, and they choose to do something different. And even Snapscan, as much as it's a you know it, it's part of a corporate now, it's part of Standard Bank. It's still obviously a, a road less traveled. I mean, you've gone even more less traveled than that. I think you've been dabbling in so many fascinating things. You know, living here in Cape Town, I remember a lot of the breakfasts that we used to have, we'd talk about that entrepreneurial energy of Cape Town. Mm. And that's part of why I moved here is I just love it here. You know, there's just so much going on here. There's so much cool stuff. People have to hustle because you don't necessarily have that safety net of having these big blue chip companies everywhere who can give you a job. There are a few of them in Cape Town, but there are not that many. Do you think being in Cape Town has made a big difference to your journey? I mean, could you have done this in Joburg and, and what stopped you going overseas? Because I remember at some points that was potentially on the cards. If I go back in time, I'm trying to think what, you know, stepping into my shoes back then, what, what mental state I was in. I think I was very excited having traveled so much and I, I wanted to make life an adventure rather than just having like a six month adventure every so often. You know, I think that was, uh, that was cool. And I, I saw startups and, and all these new technologies as a continuation of, of making life as, as adventurous as possible. And I think Cape Town is just one of those cities where um, uh, it's not necessarily a corporate hub, right? I mean, so you're not going to get the banking that you get in Joburg or, or maybe the consulting, those sort of things. But you, you certainly get like a forced innovation, right? And maybe that's through the beauty of the city or like um, the influx of foreigners or, or what have you. The opportunity of going overseas was a known outcome, right? I mean, it's uh, join a firm overseas and, and you've got a very structured hierarchical uh, chain up to whatever position you want to aim at right i mean that's a kind of very typical thing but cape town is just like geez well i mean one moment i'm working for a non-profit the next thing i'm <laughs> you know sort of uh getting caught up in this whole frenzy of the 2017 crypto market and you know next thing and 
you know, helping out in terms of, or starting my own education thing. So yeah, it was a very exciting, it is a very exciting city, I think. Um, I think it's lost a little bit of its glean with COVID, but you know, we can only hope that that's, that'll all come back. I think everywhere's lost a bit of its glean with COVID. At least it came off a high base, that's for sure. And hopefully it'll come back. Vagabond, we need to get you down here. Yeah, I mean, I definitely need to come down. I'm down here at the moment. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I know, the, you're going back. The, the ghost is crib. So, I mean, this is amazing. <laughs> I think you've got some more questions on Cape Town, Cape Town, don't you? Yeah, so I think next is actually a question for the both of you. You both started your corporate journeys in Johannesburg. You both moved down to Cape Town, and it seems like it's been a happily ever after. And so before asking my question, I want to tee it up with a quote from a Paul Graham essay called How to Become Silicon Valley. In it, he mentions two specific things that makes a great entrepreneurial city, the one being nerds and the second being rich people. So the quote goes, most nerds like wider pleasures. They like cafes instead of clubs, used bookshops instead of fashionable clothing shops, hiking instead of dancing, sunlight instead of tall buildings, well-preserved old neighborhoods instead of cookie-cutter suburbs, and locally owned shops and restaurants instead of national chains. Like the rest of the creative class, they want to live somewhere with personality. And so with that in mind, my question is, which South African city of the two that you've lived in best fits that? This is like a trick question. (laughs) I mean, that is literally like you wrote about Cape Town. Exactly. And that's the point I'm trying to make is, can the two of you maybe speak about, Nick, you've already touched on it slightly, what the key differences are that the two of you have seen between Johannesburg and Cape Town. And obviously, Nick, you've spoken about there being more corporates in Johannesburg. And then, I mean, I've only been here for two weeks in Cape Town, but every second person I'm speaking to is starting his own business or some sort of side hustle to ensure that he can go and run on the promenade at lunch. So, I mean, if you guys can maybe touch on that. I'll go first because there's a point I want to make, and I think it's that the average Cape Townian is happier. So if you speak to people about the city, they're generally positive and they're excited to be here and they love it. And it's very rare to find that in Joburg. You will find people who love it and there are reasons to love it. You know, it's it's easy to bash Joburg. It has a lot of good qualities. I'm really glad I did my university years there. I think the nightlife's better actually. But, you know, there are a lot of things about Cape Town that are really, really nice. And like I say, for me, it's that positivity. You know, we've been through that terrible drought and people got on with it. We have been through all kinds of stuff and, you know, there's been boom years in the time I've been down here where <laughs> the prices of inner city properties were absolutely frightening. And then there have been years where it's cooled off completely and the and the foreigners have stopped buying to a large extent. I mean, a lot of people on the Atlantic seaboard and those sort of areas who bought at really inflated prices are going to pretty much be married to those houses because they have unfortunately really overpaid. So it's gone up, it's gone down, but for me, it's this melting pot of cultures it's a lot of people from overseas, but it's a lot of people who have moved here from Durban, Joburg, people who grew up here. And they all kind of come together with this common purpose of trying to just enjoy their lives and actually make the most of living in the city because it is one of the best cities, I think, in the world from a lifestyle perspective. So that for me is the biggest difference. And they do what they need to do to survive. They start businesses because, as you pointed out and as we've said, there's not that many jobs per se. There are, well, there are a lot of jobs, but they're not going to get you to where you want to go in life. If you've got big ambitions financially, or in terms of building stuff, then you, you would probably need to go more the entrepreneurial route in Cape Town with limited exceptions. And Nick, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, maybe as a Cape Townian or, or, you know, having 
chat of Skeptonians is that Joburg does get a bad rep and, and get ba- gets bashed a, a, a lot. But I, I do think the social life in Joburg is better. Yeah, sure. I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, it's it's depending on where you are in your life. I don't think, uh, I think, you know, the qualities you mentioned of Ketan are certainly true in terms of creativity. But I think Joburg is a lot more hustlers there. A lot things happen faster for sure. Yeah. Um, and people are, are a bit more energetic. Well, probably a lot more energetic actually. So, you know, I think it, it, it depends what you're trying to do really. Okay, so moving on to your love of education, Nick, because I think that's that's really the startup angle that that makes you so interesting. In addition to the many many other things you've done, so I remember chatting to you about the business when it was still called Pocket Jam before Urban Dictionary ruined that piece of branding. And you've always had a passion for teaching, and I think that's always come through in even my discussions with you. We've always you know shared knowledge and and all that kind of stuff. I mean, where does that come from? Would you say that's your underlying burning passion is teaching? Is it is it just the art of education? What is it about that space that appeals to you? Part of, part of this kind of time I took off overseas was also to read as much as possible. And uh, I picked up like, um, you know, Elon Musk said it when he was at the university, he kind of identified things in his life that he wanted to impact. And I took a similar approach and, and um, kind of narrowed it down to, I also believe, you know, things like renewable energy and electric cars and are, are super important. But the two sectors that I added were really finance because I had the background in finance. So then that became obviously decentralized finance and then education. Nick, can you maybe explain um, explain that concept to the people listening that might not <clears throat> decentralize finance? Yeah, so... Or DeFi as the cool kids yeah. call it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's become more of a... Uh, Which Nick is one of those. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he is. Well, it's, that term has kind of exploded, I guess, since around about July last year, but wasn't really well known kind of before then. But... I mean, I guess the whole philosophy of crypto is to say, well, actually, we can just back it by technology and code, right? And and specifically um, use this technology for security or cryptographic encryption, right? I mean, so um, that that then removes the need to rely on on kind of centralized entities to provide things like trust, provide value to to things. Instead, they can be accrue value through through a network of people actually using it, people trusting it. Um, and then this network obviously becomes global. So it's got incredible power if the idea can be adopted. So decentralized finance now has been born out of the original ideas of, of, of Bitcoin, just out of a currency, and has evolved now into lending, which is huge. Uh, platforms like Compound and Aave are big. Um, uh, insurance now all on the blockchain. Uh, you can do that through like Nexus Mutual, for instance. Um, Uniswap and, and SushiSwap are massive. They are now exchanges. So we were actually um, chatting to um, a more traditional asset manager the other day, and they couldn't believe that you could have basically a, a stock exchange built entirely out of code that uh, re- requires no intermediaries, and you basically exchange peer-to-peer assets using something called a smart contract. Sorry, I interrupted you there. We were still speaking about education, so... Don't worry, it sounds like Nick's more excited about DeFi anyway than the education. I actually want to bring the two together. So this disintermediation point. I mean, today, Curo released results. They were horrible. Curo is now on about a 26 PE. That's 26 years worth of earnings that you would pay for from a traditional schools network that doesn't really do anything special. It's just a private school that's a little bit better than a public school, which is why I'm not a Curo shareholder. Because if anything, lockdown has taught us that you can disintermediate a lot of things. You can do a lot of things remotely. I mean, I don't think foundation phase is ever going that way. But older school kids, there's no reason why that can't be disintermediated in terms of schools being disintermediated. Connecting teachers and kids directly and actually allowing teachers to essentially compete for a share of wallet by being the best teacher they can be paid directly by parents 
and almost create this competitive market that kind of takes schools out of the middle, especially at high school level? I mean, I think I've had enough experience in, in education startups to see that like technology is at the moment just a layer. So like it's very difficult to disintermediate that. Uh, certainly like that tutoring kind of relationship that a teacher has with a um with a student, I mean, that's like oldest time, really. You know, Plato, Plato and Aristotle, and yeah. you know, if you go back, and uh, you've, it's. I think because of the soft uh, skills and and the kind of mentorship aspect that comes with it, uh, I just think of how many great teachers that I've had back in the day. That I think it it would be difficult to fully, you know, disintermediate that. And I actually don't know if we really want that. Having said that, I mean, your original question and on the cycling and segueing back maybe a little bit was what? Why am I passionate about education? Like, where does that come from? So. You know, it, it comes from, I guess, my, my mom being a teacher and then I, I you know, sat on as a, as a lecturer at, at, at BITS. But I found that, like, one way to, to really scale education is that we have a, a kind of, I, I see the problem as not being so much the delivery of education or even the, the, the school system. It's the actual incentive structure it can be disruptive. So uh, I've tried a number of different approaches and that's kind of led to Math for Money, which is the sense of um, if you can properly build an incentive feedback loop where people are you know encouraged to learn more and therefore earn more um you can just create so much more value so much faster right instead of having to wait for a legacy system to catch up so what's intrigued me to do things like math money and uh, i tried some of the things with tutor where we'd have prizes and stuff for completing courses is the idea for just getting paid to learn because to me um one thing that came out of the study when i was busy at phoenix for building incentive structures into education is that if the government just for example had chosen instead of making education free to give up the revenue on UNISA so if we look at the revenue structure and what governments make and, and fees that come in from universities UNISA you know um, educates 60% of the population and, and costs you know, brings in 10% of the revenue so one of the innovative things you could do there is just simply say cool well, we'll attach incentive structures to UNISA degrees so we can make them free but if you qualify and you know you, you get this degree, we'll pay out two, three thousand rand or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, you've now said, okay, we weren't making much revenue from this anyway. You know, we can attach kind of like education grants to this, and all of a sudden now you've bootstrapped an incredible way for people to be incentivized to learn. Now, obviously, that was difficult to do because you're relying on a government to fund it. So I thought, well, how can you start as early as possible um, and bootstrap that same idea from a young age? And you can do that obviously with pocket money because most kids receive um, a sort of nominal amount of pocket money. Yeah. doesn't necessarily need to be big, but if you could get them to do something useful instead of just hiding the house and like educate themselves, you know, hence math for money, then that's a really powerful idea. Incentive-based learning that could not disrupt teaching necessarily, but get people to, to learn faster. Um, and we can talk about the curriculum of math for money, but I mean, that's, I think for me, that's the real interesting angle that, that no one, well, from our research and startups, no one has really done successfully successfully, or, you know, um, thought of, of being the problem in education. Well, I think that's a pretty great segue into the next section that we want to discuss because, I mean, this show is about startups and we've got you on here to speak specifically about math for money as well. And so I think you've already explained what the idea is behind math for money, but can you maybe give us a slightly different background of who the people are that's involved, where the business is currently, and then where you are hoping to go? Because obviously it started with this incentive, but what is the big picture behind? Where does Math for Money want to be in five or ten years? I think I mentioned already, I started a university kind of education platform. 
Um, and we tried some incentive structures there, as I mentioned, uh, with, with some kind of prizes and things, but saw that the same technology could be used at a young age. So we just ran a kind of like couple of beta beta tests and used basically family, family and friends and, and, you know, tested the idea of, of an incentive structure with pocket money. It worked really well. And then was running along with that and an opportunity came up, you know, as I mentioned, to, to go through this VC program in Switzerland. Uh, we were early enough, you know, having a very basic MVP and some traction, some kind of provable data from, from the analysis we've done. We raised like a very small seed round. And so when I'm saying we, it's, um, it's, uh, Catherine and, and Nick. So Nick's an old, old, uh, old friend of mine and Kath, um, was a product manager at, uh, the Santa Bank incubator I used to work at and eventually became a girlfriend. <laughs> so that's a <laughs> nice result of the startup. Um, but yeah, so the three of us have kind of been the core team behind it. And the journey has been an interesting one. You would think that the challenges um, linked to user acquisition or something like that. I mean, the business model is, is a tricky one, right? Because uh, your customer or the person that you're trying to acquire is, in this case, the parent. What you need to do, and that's why kids' apps particularly are very difficult, is that you need to incentivize the kids to ask the parent to download the app. And so what we really struggled with initially was um, a, way, a mechanism that you could loop back the kid to essentially enter their parents email address and there are all sorts of privacy requirements from a kid perspective as to what information you can capture so you can imagine now you know we're getting a kid to download the app we don't know what anything about them really because we can't capture any information but all we need is them to link out there an email to the parent who then needs to go through a sign up flow so you can see now how much can go wrong in the process so we just basically had to go through reams and reams of of, of different iterations of the app itself to get the ui good enough that this was a a relatively seamless process. I wouldn't even say where we are now as a seamless process, but we call them profile links. So like when a, a kid links to a parent, just like that is how we're measuring the growth, at least from a sign-up perspective. Month to month, we're seeing that now take off. But when we originally started the idea, we were actually going with um, the parents to top up credit cards for the kids. What we realized is like, especially testing this in South Africa, for a parent to top up a credit card was going to cost like 30 rand. And the kids are only earning... <laughs> 50 rand. So, I mean, yeah. the business model was dead, like absolutely dead on arrival. And obviously with my background in crypto, I was just thinking, I mean, this is the literally perfect case for having a global currency costs nothing. Unfortunately, just we're, you know, at, at this stage, not there yet. At the time, it was Facebook was on the verge of re- releasing Libra and we we're thinking that would be the perfect integration. So we basically ran the app for quite a while with just cards and just getting people to use it just so we could get the data on, on the users. And interestingly, while we were doing that with parents and kids and getting the parents to the top of the credit cards, we also we also ran a social impact, you know, campaign in the sense that you could sponsor a kid as well, you know, if you wanted to like donate pocket money. And it was quite amazing. We uh, in Cape Town we worked with. Is that any kid that you can see on the platform? And is that an idea that you took from when you were still at Phoenix? Because I know Phoenix basically worked like that as well. You could see the profile. You could yes, exactly. Yeah, and look, I think, um, look. In terms of scaling education, you can't just do it if you're going to have wealthy parents give pocket money to their kids. Like, you ultimately need people who don't have kids or people who have kids but want to also donate. And I mean, we, you know, pocket money for young kids, not a lot of money. So, potentially donate to other kids. Um, you know, we need that model to work as well. So, we wanted to test that in parallel. And we did that through a, a school. So, in Cape Town, we worked with some Cyprians just to test the app. And then we worked with their sister school. Zonobloom um, High School and, and we amazingly there we sponsored a couple of the kids ourselves just to test it and then 
had a couple of guys come on and actually sponsor pocket money for those kids for this program. So it was like a super, super like um, inspiring. I mean, because this was just, you know, not even us asking for it, someone just coming on and, and sponsoring. So yeah. that was super inspiring. But eventually we had to shut the that model down just because it wasn't going to work. And in this process, we we're like, if we can't get this to work, we need to pitch to banks. So then we wanna, went on a massive campaign pitching to Standard Bank, NetBank, you know, it's kind of trying to do the SnapScan thing. But we realized, and we actually spoke to the SnapScan founder at the time, and they just said, look, you know, the banks have budgets for this sort of thing. And like, if you if you meet what they're looking for at the time, you'll get it. And if you don't... There's no chance. So we, we tried it and we figured, look, we, we're probably not going to work. So we basically remodeled the whole app and, and that took some time basically around about April last year where we rebranded and that's where the rebrand from Pocket Jams and Math for Money went. And we decided to go international. We said, look, um, South African market's tiny. So we need to rather focus on doing a math management, uh, sorry, a pocket money management system so parents can track pocket money, but there's no money flowing through the app. And we're going to do a subscription model where you'd pay uh, $3 a month and it would be to an international audience, you know, for Americans, that's, you know, that was all the, what the other pocket money apps are charging for subscriptions. So, um, essentially that's, that's the development and that's where we, we are, are now. And essentially the focus now is just calculating customer acquisition cost per region. Um, and, uh, and, you know, seeing the lifetime value of a customer, all those sort of traditional metrics of a startup. Um, I don't have rich enough data to kind of give you that now because we've only sort of started that more recently in the last couple of months. Yeah, Nick, and so when you say <laughs> that the market is small, can you maybe explain that? Because I think a lot of people look at consumer businesses in South Africa and they don't really know how to um, determine the size of the market because obviously you look at a population in South Africa of around 60 million, but that's not necessarily your user base. How did you go about figuring out what the size of the market is? Um, it's actually through Facebook advertising. You pretty much go on there and you type, I'm looking for a parent who has a child aged 14 um, and, you know, has this interest or, you know, has an iPhone or something because you, you're know, looking for a paid parent. And, I mean, you get like 20,000 parents in the suburb and you're like, jeez, you know, what are the chances this parent's going to click through? And you, you end up doing it for the whole country and you see like your addressable market is like 100,000 people. So, and, and I mean, you know, where we're seeing now, Maths Money having rebranded, um, where most of our traffic from, comes from is like Australia, you know, the US, and what we do, we do also get like um, some Asian markets as well. Your subscriber base is just so much bigger, and also the, there's the habits. That's the one thing people don't understand in South Africa is there isn't necessarily a payment habit where Americans are used to paying for stuff. So to get them to subscribe to an app is not such a big leap. But South Africans are often like pinching pennies. Yeah, yeah. and and three dollars to an American is nothing, Quite but here yeah. it's actually it's a number, you know, that people think about. The other thing is, like, if you're pitching for VC funding, uh, you really you really can't do that um, from a South African perspective. You need to have a global outlook. I mean, that's why the guys from like um, Get Smarter did so well is that they went global pretty quickly. Um, so we just, I mean, in summary, what we've done is just changed our mindset to say, look, we don't mind if we fail, but we're going to fail rather with a bigger mindset, so that. You know, VCs also, if you think of it from a VC standpoint, they look at your company and they're not, they're, they're looking at it from a risk return perspective. They're like, look, there's a strong probability that this company is going to fail. But if there's a 10% probability that it succeeds in 100Xs or 10Xs, totally worth the bet, right? And you can't tell them that you're going to 100X with a South African market of 200,000 people. And therein lies the entire problem with South African VC space. Well, you know, I've also, uh, I'm not a, you know, I've never really interacted with South VC, so I'm not, I think it's wonderful. I, like, I'm not bashing the space at all. I think it's wonderful. We definitely need a vibrant VC market. I'm just saying, like... It's too small. 
if I'm a VC in South Africa as well, like, you know, one thing Naspers has done very well is they've got a foundry, which, which, you know, puts a ton of money into startups locally. And I think we, we're very lucky to have that in the ecosystem, but it's just, um, you can just completely believe it, right. From a risk return perspective, like it. Yeah. And I think that's why if you look at any VC in South Africa, one of the key selling points is you need to be able to show that you've got a product in South Africa that works that can get a bit of money, but you need to be able to scale overseas. Absolutely. I think every single one of them, and I think some of the people have been able to do that as well. So I think that's the key thing that all VCs are looking for. Um, even if you're solving a uniquely South African problem, it doesn't even need to uh, scale into developed countries. Something like Lumkani, which is um, these smoke detectors, you can look at places like India and Bangladesh, and then you start to get big populations as well. So I think that's a key thing for any consumer business in South Africa to think about is to create something from the get-go that will, people will be able to use overseas as well. I mean, even with the Finance Ghost, two things on that. One, it's thefinanceghost.com, not .co.za, and that's not by accident because I want to write about international stuff as well. I know it's just a domain. But it just gives people that impression that I'm not just writing on essay stuff because I'm not. I would say the content's maybe 50-50. I always look for cool international stories because we can invest in them as South Africans. So why not learn about them? You know, it just doesn't make sense. And the total addressable market point is really interesting. I mean, I always look at easy equities. So that's my that's the way I do it is how many accounts does easy equities have? And the last number I saw was somewhere around 600,000. I had this discussion with a friend a while ago. He reckons there's like another 400,000 stockbroking accounts in SA. So you're, you're basically looking at a million people, which I think is quite high, actually. Well, the taxpaying population is what, like 3 million? Give or take, yeah. And and you'd, you'd expect the stockbroking piece to be skewed towards higher LSMs, although this Capitec Easy Equities deal is going to help change that, which I think is absolutely fantastic. But people are taking – what I do like is people are taking more control over their money – and they are wanting to learn about the markets. They are wanting to invest, which I think is brilliant. Um, you know, over time, people taking more control over their wealth creation can only be a good thing. But it is still a small market. I mean, that is the that is the reality about South Africa. So I think that's where our VC space does struggle. And you read these stories in America where you can kind of, it almost sounds like you can raise money as long as you've got a halfway decent mm-hmm. idea. South Africa, you've got a hustle. I mean, you either have to do it while you have a full-time gig or you have to basically starve or you have to hope that you're a trust fund baby because chances of raising money from a VC straight off the bat that's going to pay you a salary you can live on day one my perception is that chances of that are not great well that's why I mean like you know a lot of these projects um these startups have actually like a you know banks are like VCs in South Africa they've funded so many things that we don't even realize like Luno for example was one of was a kind of offshoot of of a standard bank project yeah, and Standard Bank bought Snapskin as well. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you think like a lot of these things wouldn't exist if uh, if people just, uh, if, if you know, and the thing is that banks have the bankroll to do it, right? I mean, they've got massive budgets and half these projects internally are going to fail anyway, so they may as well invest in startups. Yeah, I think I just want to come back to the one point you made, Nick, specifically around when you got the idea about incentivizing the children to actually get the product into the parents. And I think it's very similar, and I think even though it's in a completely different industry, is Dropbox did something similar where they got the individual user, the three of us sitting around the table to start using the product. They went to their employer and say, uh, they basically showcased their employer saying, this is how easy Dropbox is, Dropbox is to use. And all of a sudden, the employer goes to Dropbox and says, we want an enterprise solution for this. I think if you can maybe just 
define in your own terms what you think product market fit is and if you've ever seen that or if you've ever had that at any of the companies that you founded. I haven't, yeah, I haven't been part of like a hyper growth product market fit, which, you know, probably be the likes of Facebook. One thing we track, so I think this is a classic, classic kind of like vanity metric or whatever startups, you'll track things like signups, right? And you're like, yeah, I've got so many yeah. downloads, signups, da, da, da. And one thing we, we've at least good at and, and honest with it, math money is tracking the number of questions answered. Cause that's us tells us like, that's um, the North star, right? I mean, like if kids are just doing math on the app um, and they're earning money, um, then like, you know, the rest is just UX problems, right? And we can, we can solve that. And look, I mean, if even business model, you do need it, but like, um, there could be, you know, another way to extract value, you know, down, down the line. It's just, if someone finds the product useful, it's likely that you'll, you'll be able to make it successful down the way. So, um, it's, it's very hard as a startup founder because you want everything to succeed. <laughs> when you're looking at metrics, you do like to delude yourself and say like, yes, we're really like shooting the lights off. But, but I think it's just finding us finding honesty in, in whatever you choose to be the metric that you think will make your product successful and sticking to that. And then just looking to how you grow that literally small amounts like every week, you know, getting for us, for example, the number of questions answered per kid up slightly per week um, or just getting the number of challenges completed to, to three, but not setting too many of those goals, you know, just have one or two and that's it. Nick, it's been a pleasure to have you on oh, episode so three of the Startup Junto. Thank you so much. I think tons of insights there into, into the way you think. Subsequent to recording this show, The Vagabond has in fact moved to Cape Town, which is very exciting. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would encourage you as our listeners to go back to episode one, where we interviewed the CEO and CFO of Snapscan, and episode two, where we interviewed Shannon McLaughlin, who started Ubuntu Baba. There's a lot that can be learned from them. Thank you for listening to The Startup Junto.